0: Hey guys, I wanted to say thank you so much for putting up with me last week for a whole episode. It was honestly pretty challenging, but I did it and I'm pretty proud of it and I made it all the way through. But I have some really good news for you.
1: You did an amazing job, Ricky. I am so proud of you. And yes, I am back alive and well.
0: Still kicking.
1: (laughs) Still kicking. And I do want to take a moment here to thank you all so much for your kind words and messages and prayers. It meant so much to me while I was in the hospital. I read every single one while I was lying in the hospital bed, kicking COVID butt. And I'm happy to say that I am back at home. I just feel so blessed. I, um, it was a wild adventure, though. I felt like I was almost like a test subject inside of, like, this hospital room. I had, like, a little window where, like, the nurses would, like, talk to me through and, um, like, talk to me on the phone and things like that.
0: So no one really wanted to be in the room with you, right?
1: No, no. And it, it was a long—that's why I'm saying it was, like, a long six days. It was a little traumatic, um, but— how I wound up there, just really quick. Um, my heart rate was really high. So I woke, it woke me up at like seven in the morning on Saturday. And um, I checked, I don't have like a pulse reader, but I checked it with my Apple Watch and it read 220. So Ricky and I, we went to the hospital. Um, I was honestly really scared they ended up giving me like this medicine through an iv that slowed my heart rate down very drastically and it almost felt like they warned me and said it felt like i was going to actually like die because it would it slowed down at like such a quick rate um and it it, Did it It almost felt like well, they said
0: it also kind of like stops your heartbeat, yeah,
1: it does to
0: reset it, it resets
1: it. I mean, I didn't know what else to do, you know, it's like, yeah, let's do it. Um,
0: and what's crazy is you had to do it all alone, too. Like, I was well, I had had COVID anyway, so even if they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, bring your husband, they wouldn't have let me,
1: yeah. I didn't know what was going to happen, I was just like, kind of like this is what's happening, you know? Um, but if I had to explain it, I would say like it kind of felt like as if you were going like under anesthesia when you're like falling asleep.
0: Like that that foggy feeling yeah, kind like
1: of. Yeah, and it was just getting like dark and then all of a sudden like the lights came on. So it wasn't that bad. It was definitely worth it because it helped. Um, but along with that, if I didn't go to the hospital, they, um, they also did a CT scan on my lungs because they were worried if I had a blood clot, being that I had COVID and I'm pregnant, um and they found that i had just patches all over my lungs with um with the virus and pneumonia um i didn't even realize it was that bad um so they ended up keeping me there for 6 days and putting me on remdesivir um which wiped it completely out every single day it was it was like it's amazing like i felt horrible and like every single day i just kept getting better and better yeah it was um, really fast it was yeah like, like you
0: went from being able to like barely breathe. They brought in like a some breathing treatments, and and there was like a little ball you had to like make hover.
1: Couldn't even you get couldn't it to even move. get it off the yeah. ground.
0: Like, it's yeah. crazy.
1: Yeah. So it's just amazing. Like the technology today, and like the the like it's just crazy how smart people are that they created like this medicine. Um, but I do have to just say I am just so blessed that I am back at home well. It could have just went completely south, which I didn't, you know. I feel so lucky. Um and although I
0: did I held down the fort. You did. I did.
1: Yeah, you did a pretty good job. You were you also had COVID. My mom had to drop groceries off for you. That's so.
0: like a, a single single dad of of I was, I was washing and drying.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um our son's a little he's he's older now, so he, he was able to, you know, pretty much take care of himself a little bit more than if he was younger. So that's cool. He had
0: a lot of cereal mm-hmm. for the week, I said
1: <laughs> He did. Um, But I am so thankful. Thank you guys so much for all of your support. We really wouldn't be this podcast without you. So your support just keeps us going. We love what we do.
0: Honestly, we're just happy to be back and, you know, we're able to continue to do what we love and create the show that we, you know, really enjoy to make together.
1: But without further ado, let's get on with the show. This week, we aren't just looking at one case, but eight Over the span of 10 years, serial killer Sean Vincent Gillis took the lives of eight women in the Baton Rouge, Louisiana area. From the time of his first murder in 1994, Gillis managed to stay under the radar and out of police detection for years. But when another serial killer started his spree in the same jurisdiction, the police managed to catch not only the Baton Rouge killer, but other Baton Rouge serial killer, which Gillis was nicknamed. We'll warn you now, these crimes are gruesome. And Sean Vincent Gillis, even years later, feels no remorse about what he did to eight women over the course of 10 years and is even proud of his reign of terror in his hometown. Sean Vincent Gillis was born on June 24th, 1962 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Norman and Yvonne Gillis. Norman wasn't around for much of Sean's childhood, but for the brief time that he was, he was hardly parental. Norman was an alcoholic who suffered from severe mental illness. And when Sean was just a baby, his father, in an angry, psychotic episode, held a loaded gun to his son's head. But ultimately fearing that his unstable mental state would lead to hurting his wife or baby, Norman left his family. Sean didn't see his father for nearly 16 years as Norman went in and out of mental institutions trying to get help. Outside of his broken relationship with his absent father, Sean had a relatively peaceful childhood. His mother Yvonne worked full time at a television station and while she was at work, Sean was often cared for by his grandparents. Yvonne described Sean as a normal boy in that he liked most things that other boys liked. To her, he always seemed to be a perfectly average and content little boy. Sean was particularly fond of building model cars and had a few close friends in school. He attended Catholic schools at the direction of his mother, who pushed him to have a good education. John Green is one of Sean's best friends in school, and he knew him as a smart, respectful person with a good sense of humor. Despite his average grades, Yvonne always believed her son was brilliant. But there were parts of Sean that his mother didn't see. By the time he was in high school, in the late 70s, Sean and his small group of friends often found themselves in trouble. Usually, though, it was nothing more serious than being neighborhood nuisances. Carolyn Clay, one of Sean's neighbors, recalled Sean as an angry teen. She says once she woke to a loud noise and saw Sean beating on some garbage cans. He had told a neighbor it was out of frustration that he didn't have a girlfriend. Though Yvonne could never believe such a thing about her son, but to the rest of the neighborhood, he was known for being a very angry young boy. After graduating high school, Sean continued to live with his mom at his childhood home and through the 1980s. And during this time, he saw his father for the first time since he was a baby. Sean's grandfather and Norman's dad had recently passed away, leading Norman to come back to the area. For a short period, it seemed that father and son might reconcile. But when Sean learned that his father was gay, his homophobia ruined any potential for peace. Norman eventually moved away from Baton Rouge to California, inviting Sean and Yvonne to come with, but both turned him down and he remained out of his family's life. With his father gone again, Sean's deviant behavior only seemed to grow. At age 18, he was arrested for the first time for criminal trespassing, and that was just the start. From his late teens to 20s, Sean was charged with possession of marijuana, contempt of court, a DUI, and multiple traffic citations. There was also an incident with a neighbor where he was caught looking into a window. He claims that he was looking for his cat, but given what we know about who he would become, we think it's safe to assume the worst. When he was caught, police found his traffic citations were never paid, and Sean was arrested due to the outstanding warrants. However, he was soon released. Sean struggled to hold down a job which kept him living at home with his mother up until he was 30 years old and in 1992 Yvonne was offered a job in Atlanta, Georgia which she did take. She invited her son to come with her but Sean refused and was on his own for the first time in his life Sean got a degree in computer science from a local community college and with his mother no longer around he spent the majority of his time on spending most of his time looking at pornography. At the age of 31, Sean entered into his first serious relationship with a woman named Terry. They were introduced through a mutual friend and connected quickly. Though Terry didn't like how much Sean tended to drink, she was willing to put that aside because he was kind to her and always considerate. To help him move away from accepting his mother's money, Terry got him a job at the same convenience store she worked at. Though Terry loved Sean, their relationship was fraught. When they decided to move in together, she learned how much he was addicted to porn. Their relationship was largely non-sexual because Sean said that he didn't believe in sex and that he was raised to view it as something nasty that he shouldn't do. Terry didn't quite believe this, instead assuming that it was his porn addiction that was really to blame. Despite a lack of intimacy, Terry was devoted to Sean and compromised what she wanted to make him happy.
0: The same year that Sean began his relationship with Terry, he killed his first known victim. Sean Vincent Gillis's first murder is believed to be of Anne Bryan, an 82-year-old woman who lived alone in a small retirement home. In the early morning of March 21st of 1994, Sean broke into her home with the intention of raping her. When she started screaming and fighting back, Sean became enraged and cut her throat. He then stabbed and cut her more than 50 times with a 12-inch hunting knife that he had brought with him. In his fury, he nearly cut her head off entirely. The murder of Anne Bryan went unsolved for 10 years. After the crime, Sean said he was happy and he did not kill again for nearly five years. He stayed with Terry, who was unaware of what her boyfriend had done, he went to work at the same convenience store which happened to be across the street from where Anne Bryan had lived. He continued to stay in his mother's old house, which she had left for him when she moved to Atlanta. Terry, living with Sean, overlooked and ignored all of his alarming behaviors, from looking into neighbors' windows, yelling at the moon at night, and even showing her photographs online of dead and mutilated women. But how could she ignore so much? For years, Sean waited for his next victim. Either content or bidding his time, we don't know. But by 1999, he was ready to kill again. His next victim was a 30-year-old drug addict and sex worker named Catherine Hall. One night in January of 1999, she got into Sean's car under the guise that he would pay her for her service, but instead he attacked her. He wrapped a zip tie around her neck, and when she tried to escape, he stabbed her 16 more times, killing her. His attack was vicious, stabbing her in the throat and the eyes. Then, once she was dead, he raped her, and then continued to mutilate her body. He discarded the bloody corpse in front of a dead-end sign in a rural area of East Baton Rouge. Catherine's naked body was found by a squirrel hunter the next morning.
1: You see CBD everywhere, in grocery stores, in gas stations, in health stores, but how do you know you're actually getting a good, high-quality product? Using CBD regularly is known to help with daily stress, but you have to use a quality product to get quality results.
0: Charlotte's Web Hemp Extracts are tested 20 plus times from seed to final product. And unlike many companies, Charlotte's Web has their own proprietary hemp genetics. So the end products are consistent, meaning you know what to expect from each product. And they're a mission-driven B Corp, which means they're doing their part to positively impact their employees, communities, and the environment.
1: That's right. Go to charlottesweb.com to get started with the OG CBD brand who kicked off this whole CBD craze and use code Salad at checkout to save 15% on your order. This code works on all Charlotte's Web CBD products besides bulk bundles. That's Crime Salad at charlottesweb.com. Sometimes I just don't have the time or energy to cook, especially something healthy. And what Ricky and I have been through this past week, grocery shopping was out of the question. When our schedule was busy and we weren't feeling 100%, Daily Harvest came into play and it was perfect for that light, healthy, nutritious meal we were needing. And honestly, I don't feel great when I end up eating takeout for almost every meal. This all changed once we found Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers delicious food, all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. It takes literally minutes to prepare and I never have to think twice if the food I'm eating is good for me. Daily Harvest is ready when you are. Everything stays fresh in your freezer until you're ready to enjoy it, so you waste less food too. No need to overthink any of your meals for the week with Daily Harvest, smoothies for breakfast, crisp flatbreads for lunch or dinner, and food that is perfect for cooler weather like their perfectly roasted harvest bowls and soups. Daily Harvest never uses preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything, including their recently launched almond milk, which is made of only almonds and a dash of sea salt. That's it. This is super convenient because I'm always stocked up whenever I need almond milk for my smoothies. Daily Harvest is also committed to minimizing their environmental impact. They're in the process of transitioning to 100% compostable, recyclable, plant-based, and renewable fiber packaging. Get started today. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code CRIMESALAD to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code CRIMESALAD for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. Dailyharvest.com.
0: No longer waiting years between kills. In early May of the same year, Sean Vincent Gillis found his next victim, Hardy Smith, Hardy Smith was an avid runner, and had previously run in the Boston Marathon. She was a mother of three, and frequently ran in the South Baton Rouge area. It wasn't until about three weeks after he first spotted her, that his opportunity to attack arose. On May 30th, around 6.30am, Sean intentionally hit her with his car, throwing her into a ditch. She was injured, but still alive. Like he did with Catherine Hall, he used a zip tie to strangle her to death. He then dragged her back to his car where he raped and stabbed her. He put her mutilated body in his trunk and drove home. Terry commented how bad the car smelled, but Sean lied, saying that he had just hit a squirrel. She didn't ask any more questions or look for herself. Later that day, Sean dumped Hardy Smith in a bayou about 35 miles outside of Baton Rouge. She was found the next day by a passing bicyclist. After that, Sean Vincent Gillis's murders varied in the interval of time between kills, confusing police. It was thought that typical serial killers would need to kill at certain regular intervals, but Sean had lengthy periods of time without any kills. His victims also varied widely in race, age, and socioeconomic status, but they were all women, most of them sex workers. Sean murdered his fourth victim on November 12th of 1999. Joyce Williams, also a sex worker, was 36 when Sean lured her into his car before strangling her with a zip tie, which was becoming his M.O., But this time, Sean brought Joyce's dead body back to his home to manipulate it further. In doing so, he cut off one of the legs and cut off her nipples. Sean then proceeded to eat her nipples. In all of his violence, this was the first time that he ever did something like this, and it excited him. He picked up Terry from work with Joyce's mangled dead body still in the car sean vincent gillis was on a killing spree and the police weren't getting any closer to catching him on january 2000 he killed 52 year old lillian robinson his fifth victim and towards the end of october 2000 he killed 38 year old marilyn nevels his sixth victim he dumped her body only three miles from his own home near the mississippi river her body was found on halloween after the murder of a six woman within a short time, Sean Gillis took a pause from his brutal killings. But women in Baton Rouge had little to feel safe. There was a second serial killer in the area, Derek Todd Lee. Derek Todd Lee, 34 years old at the time of his arrest, killed five women over the course of a two-year period. Gina Wilson Green, Charlotte Murray Pace, Pam Kinnamore, Trenisha Denae Column and Carrie Lynn Yoder. Derek Todd Lee had a different killing style than Sean Vincent Gillis, which police knew they were dealing with two different killers. With so much violence in Baton Rouge, the police set up a task force, but the primary objective seemed to be more on finding this new killer, not Sean. So while the police investigated, so did Sean Gillis, He kept tabs on these most recent killings and even had a file on his hard drive named DTL, where he collected news articles and photos of the Derek Todd Lee case. The media called Lee the Baton Rouge serial killer, and it seemed as though Sean did not want to be outdone by Lee, as in truth, he was too a Baton Rouge serial killer. Sean killed again in less than six months after Lee's arrest in May of 2003. In October of 2003, this time though, he killed someone he knew. Gillis' seventh victim was Johnny May Williams, a mother of three and a well-liked woman. Though she was working as a sex worker, Johnny had also cleaned Sean's home a few times over the years, and it was because he knew her that Sean decided to pick her up on the night that she was working. He drove Johnny May to a secluded area, and then raped and strangled her. After she was dead, he mutilated her body, removing both of her hands. Unlike his previous victims, this time, he posed her body and took photographs of his work, He took nearly 50 pictures. In February of 2004, Sean Vincent Gillis took his eighth life, a prostitute in her 40s named Donna Bennett Johnston. Donna was very drunk when Sean got to her, and he had no trouble coercing her into his car. From there, he drove somewhere quiet near his house and strangled her, killing her within a few minutes. He again slashed her body with a knife. He also cut her arm and cut a tattoo from her thigh. Sean later shared his own account of what happened that night, saying in a letter to one of Donna's friends, she was so far gone that night that I don't think she even knew what was happening to her. She was so drunk that it only took about a minute and a half to succumb to unconsciousness and then death. Honestly, her last words were, I can't breathe. I still puzzle over the postmortem dismemberment and cutting. There must be something deep in my subconscious that really needs that kind of gruesome action.
1: Luckily, this was Gillis's last victim. In the grassy area where Donna's body was found, there were fresh tire tracks that stood out to police. They took molds of these tracks and got lucky. There were only about 100 sets of those tires sold in the Baton Rouge area. This narrowed down the pool significantly, but they still needed to interview a lot of people. Police talked to everyone they could who had purchased the tires in the past year and questioned them about whether or not they still had the car. But having those tires wouldn't be enough to match someone to the crime. Investigators also asked all the tire owners if they would voluntarily submit to the DNA swab, many of which did. In April of 2004, these interviews are what led detectives to Sean Vincent Gillis. When they arrived at his home to ask about the car and tires, he willingly offered up that he knew the second to last victim. Johnny May Williams. He told police she had been in his car and Sean had paid her in the past to clean the house. He also told them that he had been by the crime scene when they asked about the tire marks found by the field. His suspicious responses were an immediate red flag for police and they asked him to come down to the station to discuss things a little more. Sean's responses at the station did little to throw suspicion off of him. When asked why they may find blood in the car, he said it was because Johnny May had gotten her period while in the car and that it looked like a massacre in the front seat. When police asked how blood could have gotten to the back seat, Sean said that it was probably because the windows were down and some blood flew out of the window and got back in. Everyone in the police station watching this interview immediately knew they found their man. Police requested a search warrant for the vehicle and expedited the DNA testing of their primary suspect's sample. Despite the outrageous statements Sean made in the precinct, all they had until a DNA match would come back was circumstantial. They had to let him go, but not for long. In April of 2004, less than eight weeks after Donna's death, police matched tire tracks where her body was found to Sean Vincent Gillis's Chevrolet Cavalier and were able to get a positive DNA match to some of the victims. A SWAT team and police went to Sean's home that he still shared with Terry, and they arrested him a little after one in the morning. As he was arrested, Sean turned to Terry, shrugged when she was panicking and demanding to know what was happening. And his only response was, "'Sorry, honey bunny.'" One of the arresting officers looked at Terry incredulously and asked, "'Didn't you know you were living with a serial killer?' Terry replies, boy, do you have the wrong house? With solid evidence against him, Sean Gillis confessed to the murders that day. Following Sean's statements, investigators went back to his house for more evidence. They seized several large knives and saws, the pictures of Johnny May Williams' body, a bayonet, hard drives, zip ties, books about serial killers, and newspaper articles that Sean had collected about Carrie Yoder, Lee's last victim— his DNA was linked to the bodies of Katherine Hall, Johnny May Williams, and Donna Bennett Johnson. But Sean asked police for a pencil and willingly wrote the names of his other victims for them. Unashamed and unremorseful about what he had done, Sean happily told police about all of his gruesome fantasies and actions. He talked about cutting up one of the women on his kitchen floor while Terry was at her night shift. And he talked about taking a shower with Donna Johnston's corpse and admiring the severed hands of Johnny May Williams and the severed legs of Joyce Williams. Sean Vincent Gillius was proud of what he had done and wanted to be known for it. A month after his arrest, Sean was interviewed in May of 2004 by the FBI. His taped confession and interview showed how he felt he was in a chess game with them. On the tape, he says, "'I was the chess master then. "'You're not gonna beat me. He followed TV and news to see whether he was winning against the police and whether they had found any evidence or bodies. Though he didn't necessarily plan the times he would kill, he did strategically dump the bodies. Sean boasted that he preferred to leave the bodies right before it rained so that the evidence and the tracks would be washed away. What Sean didn't know was that he had left DNA at some of the crime scenes. When he was called in for questioning, Sean realized that he was going to lose his chess game with the police and to get some semblance of the upper hand in his twisted mind, he decided to confess. The prosecutor in Sean's case wanted the death penalty, calling Sean a narcissistic, self-centered, egomaniac serial killer. But he wasn't able to prove this as clearly as the police knew because the taped interview detailing how Sean planned and thought of his crimes as a chess game was deemed inadmissible and never played in court. Sean had asked for an attorney during the interview, but was not given one, so the tape couldn't be used. The prosecutors claimed that they only continued with the interview because Sean continued to talk and provide information after he requested the lawyer. Luckily, besides the tape confessions to authorities that was found inadmissible, Sean wrote letters to a woman named Tammy Perpara, detailing his murders, and he spoke to a journalist, Josh Knoll. During the interview in 2004 with Josh, he also confessed to killing eight women. Josh testified to this in court. Sean Gillis was eager to confess to his crimes, not out of guilt, but pride. It was not until 2008 that Sean's case finally went to trial. As there was DNA evidence to tie him to the victims, Sean Gillis was charged with the murders of Catherine Hall, Johnny May Williams, and Donna Bennett. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. In a separate trial, he also pleaded guilty to the murder of Joyce Williams, his fourth victim. Today, Sean Vincent Gillis is still in prison at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, where he will remain incarcerated for the rest of his life. In his nearly 20 years in prison, he hasn't changed his ways at all. In his confession, he stated that, "'I'm sorry I hurt people, But I would do it again. And if anything in my useless life comes out, help the little girls today not to be the premature corpses of tomorrow. With no remorse and such heinous crimes, we are confident Sean Vincent Gillis will never get out of prison. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's
0: episode. We'll see you next time. Crime Salad is a weird salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.